The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello, I'm Andrew Tuck, and you're listening to Tool Stories on Monocle 24, brought to you by the team behind The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. Copenhagen is synonymous with bicycles, rivaling the best and brightest in Europe when it comes to two-wheel transport. However, the city wasn't always destined to be a cycling utopia. As recently as the 1960s, the Danish capital was enamoured by cars and even had plans to pave over its iconic lakes to make way for a new highway. So, what influenced the Danes to reroute? Christian Green brings us this tall story. It's around 8.45 on a Tuesday morning in Copenhagen, and I'm standing at what's sometimes called the busiest bicycle intersection in Europe. Okay, so admittedly, the exact numbers here are contested by those in the world of comparative biking studies. Maybe it's the busiest in the world, maybe it's just the busiest in Copenhagen, but either way, it's certainly busy, with an estimated tens of thousands of bikers crossing through on any given day. This intersection is particularly busy because it's located right at a traffic choke point, where Queen Louise's Bridge connects the popular neighbor of Norbro to the historic city center. It's a place where the dense neighborhood streets abruptly end and suddenly there's nothing but sky above and water below, belonging to the three man-made rectangular lakes that once served as the city's outer border. My favorite thing about this intersection, and why I'm standing here now talking to you about it, is that it isn't just a busy traffic intersection. Come back to the same spot at 10am and you'll find new mothers sitting together, talking on a bench by the lakes with their children parked and sleeping in strollers. Come back again at 6 in the afternoon, you might find co-workers sat atop one of the rails, drinking beers and enjoying the afternoon sun. And if you come around midnight, you might even catch a huddle of teenagers bouncing around a speaker. The lakes and Queen Louise's Bridge, they represent one of the things Copenhagen is most well known for. It's a place where people are prioritized. It's an important historic thoroughfare where you can also go for a run or sit in a green space and take in the open air. And it's right in the middle of the city. It's a place where bicycles have ample space and there's only a single lane of car traffic in either direction, so pedestrians have no trouble reaching and enjoying this iconic Copenhagen space. But this place is also interesting because all of this, the bike lanes, the wide open lakes, the human over cars focus, it wasn't inevitable. In fact, in this very location, Denmark almost went down a very, very different path where none of this would be as it is today. 
This particular story picks up just after the end of the Second World War. Even after freedom from Nazi occupation, Denmark's economy remained weak and struggled to rebound for years. Much of the growth and development that did occur was all concentrated outside of the city and nearby suburbs, and so initial investments in infrastructure were mainly focused on developing rail and motorways between suburbs and the city. And while Denmark struggled to develop much in the late 40s and early 50s, they would have looked abroad and seen that a different architectural style was growing in influence and leaving its mark on cities throughout the world. Modernism. Originating from the 1920s and 30s, and pioneered by the likes of the Swiss-French architect Le Corbusier, modernist architecture sought to use new technologies of the time to radically transform how people navigated their cities. After war efforts subsided, newly cheap and abundant concrete could be used to build massive apartment buildings to house growing populations, and the proliferation of automobiles meant that more and more people could travel further, faster. In modernist cities, Life was efficiently split into its component parts of living, working, and playing, and the geography of the city itself was split to match this. The modernist utopia envisioned cities as urban islands, full of unornamented construction and connected by wide, long motorways. In some cities, large swaths of historic buildings were demolished just to make way for grids of large rectangular buildings and wide, flat highways. While this might not sound so appealing today, at the time many cities were eager to remake themselves in this new image, Copenhagen included. By the late 1950s, Denmark's economy was beginning to grow, and with it came an ever wealthier suburban middle class, more and more of whom were ditching those bicycles for fancy new cars. Photos of Copenhagen from this time look like a twisted mirror universe compared to walking its streets today. Stwaal, the famed walking and shopping street was filled with traffic, while Gamelsholf, which today is a spacious and popular square reserved for pedestrians, was treated just like a cobblestone parking lot. The lakes at least remained a popular and beloved space for pedestrians, but Copenhagen's Lord Mayor at the time, a self-proclaimed modernist named Urban Hansen, became interested in changing that when he saw plans for something called Syringen, the lake ring. The Lake Ring was first proposed in 1958, and then it was approved by Parliament in 1964. The plan was simple, but massive. It proposed to build a 12-lane highway running from the northern suburbs directly into the heart of the city. From there, it would start to curve in a ring along the lakes before it met a brand new motorway interchange, where it would then direct cars out to the southwest, towards the rest of Denmark, and towards mainland Europe. And to build this highway, the city would need to demolish existing housing in the north and nearly eradicate a large section of the neighborhood of Vestibolt just to make room for all those automobiles. And as for the lakes, the shoreline would need to be extended, meaning the city would need to fill them with tons of new dirt in order to make sure there was enough land to accommodate all 12 sprawling lanes. That's what Copenhagen's maybe the busiest bicycle intersection in the world almost became. And I doubt many young mothers with strollers or early morning joggers or post-work colleagues would gather along the side of a 12-lane highway to take in that diminished lake view. It would have just been a busy road with the sole purpose of connecting disjointed spaces of the city. And that would be it. Now, obviously and luckily, this never happened. 
But it wasn't because officials realized this was such a horrible idea. It was something much more typical. The project was too expensive, and it progressed too slowly. Some buildings were demolished in anticipation of the road, and a few smaller six-lane highways were constructed around the city, but the project's slow pace allowed time for groups who opposed it to gain steam. Grassroots organizations started to build road barricades in protest, and Politiken, the country's largest newspaper, ran stories denouncing the plan. But the true final nail in the Lake Ring coffin That came in the early 70s in the form of a series of oil crises and a period of economic stagflation. Oil prices skyrocketed and automobile use plummeted. At some points in the crisis, the government even declared car-free Sundays in order to retain enough oil just for energy use. After decades of decline, bicycle usage went up for the first time, purely out of necessity. And then, on some of those car-free Sundays, Copenhageners got a taste of what it was to live in their city without automobiles clogging up those beautiful historic squares. Eventually, that led to a groundswell of activism to pedestrianize more of the city and to shift infrastructure investments away from automobiles and toward building out an extensive network of biking lanes. At first, the government attempted, in vain, to confine bikers only to side streets so that major thoroughfares remained the domain of the car. But bikers defied, They continued to use the roads that made the most sense for them, and ultimately the city submitted, deprioritizing motorways and building out the bicycle infrastructure that serves as the basis for what we have today. I like this story because as much as I love Copenhagen, I think people look at it now and assume it was always destined to be what it is. It's a mistake we make a lot with history. People think that bicycling must somehow be genetic for Danes. They look at the lakes and think they must be this space because they always have been. But it isn't, and they haven't. We're lucky enough to have what we have today because of a mixture of weird economics, grassroots activism, and frankly, some dumb luck. It's a simple but important lesson to remember. Because it also means just because we have something today doesn't guarantee we have it tomorrow. You've been listening to Tool Stories, a Monocle 24 production. Today's episode was written by Christian Green and produced and edited by David Stevens. Remember to tune in on Thursday for the full 30-minute edition of The Urbanist. I'm Andrew Tuck. Goodbye, and thank you for listening, city lovers. City lovers.